We are returning to our study. We're dealing with the overall perspective is confessional apologetics. We've looked, as I said, in the first six or so sermons in this series at how the Reformation in England brought us to the writing of this confession. And then we looked at the necessity of establishing creeds by which we are to follow the teaching of the pattern of sound words that God commands of us to have a system of theology, a system that is based on the word of God. And so it is, we're talking about the establishment of that system in order to understand how we are to create a polemic, that is how to go after false teachings and then give answers for a defense of our Christian world and life views. Very important. And so we're talking confessional apologetics, and the subtitle is The Concept of Confessional Theology as the Philosophical Method of Revelational Presuppositional Apologetics. That's why we're spending time on the confession. Now our text is out of 2 Timothy 1, 13-14. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love, which are in Jesus Christ. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And then we have the exhortation in Psalm 138.2. And I quote, I will worship at the holy temple and praise thy holy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above thy Name. The name of God is lifted up because of God's loving kindness, His grace, and because He has given us truth. He is truth Himself. But it is the Word, the very Word of God which is magnified above that great name of God. The word is the highest authoritative form by which God communicates to man his loving kindness of his will concerning both himself and 
for man in redemption to the end of all things in the eschaton of time. So it is we are to praise and worship the name of God. Shall we look to the Lord our God in prayer? Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have to come to again examine your word, its teaching. Help us, O oh God, to drive home this great truth of thy word. So that in everything, we always see it through the lenses of your word. As it were, Thy word becomes the very lenses by which we view the world and all things in it. And so, O oh God, we pray that we would not only receive, but we would live and depend upon that word for our life. Thank you, O oh God, for your many blessings, for the revelation of that word in our life how it has opened our eyes and touched our hearts, transformed us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So we ask, O oh God, you would bless us. Help us, O oh God, now. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart that will receive thy word by thy spirit in this hour. In Christ's most holy name, Amen. Well, we're looking at chapter one of the confession. And I said we're going to be in this chapter for some time. That doesn't mean forever, but that doesn't mean it couldn't be forever. I just don't know. But we're laying a foundation. As I said to you, if I was writing this, in a chapter of a book, it would be entitled, No Other Foundation. If you get this wrong, the rest of the system will be off. You cannot get it right when you get this part wrong. It's impossible. This is the roadmap. This is the guide that takes us through and tells us exactly what God expects of us. How we are to admire him, uplift his name, worship him in holiness and integrity. How we are to preach concerning the gospel of his son. What God says about salvation. I read in a blog that I follow and a few times interact in. An Arminian simply said, well, if a person will just say the sinner's prayer and believe it. And I said, that's strange because I don't think prayer saves anybody. Christ does. But what if he just believes that he believes? What if he's really deceived? The Bible says the demons believe, but that doesn't mean they're saved. 
can a person have an existential experience by which he thinks I've done everything that's required. I said the sinner's prayer, or I walked the aisle, or I gave God money, or I did this, or I've done that. Will that not satisfy the requirement to prove that I am a Christian? And the answer is no. Christ said himself, many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied that name? Have we not done this? Have we not done that? And he says to them, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. Their work has been rejected. Why? I have not loved you. How do we know the love of God? How do we know that we should have confidence? Real faith is not saying that I agree with what God says only, but I embrace it into my life. And I live according to the dictates of what the word of God says. I've been transformed, Ephesians 2 says, created in the image of Christ to walk in what God hath ordained for me, good works. The manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit is that I want to perform that which God has ordained for me to perform. To keep his law and to walk in it the power of the Spirit of God. You cannot do it apart from it. So the word becomes so important. Without the word, you would not know all of that. There is some knowledge required in order to make a profession of faith. I read in another blog, somebody said, what is required in order for a man to be saved, have faith. What well, does he require? A little bit of knowledge. No, just have faith. Faith in what? Even when Paul was at Mars Hill and he was looking at all the statues to the gods that the Greeks were worshiping, Paul says, I see you have Many gods. Well, the argument is, must I convince you God exists? You kind of already demonstrated it. All you got to do is go out here and look. Of course they believe in God. Problem is, they got too many gods. But I noticed he said a statue to the unknown God. He, I will declare to you who it is this day. But without that Essential knowledge. That Paul revealed to them. They would have had no concept of salvation. Cannot be done. The word. That's what we've been seeing so far. Is that important? So we are here in chapter one. Of the Holy Scripture. And in section one, we read, although the light of nature 
and the work of creation and providence. Do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men, what? Inexcusable. How much do they know? Never does the word tell us. General revelation, us created as the Imago Dei, in the image of God, rational beings endued with knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. We have no idea how much knowledge we actually have. Just this, as the divines say, it's enough that the scripture says we are left inexcusable before God. So we know that we cannot be excused because of a lack of knowledge, but at the same time, we do not know how much knowledge is actually there. Just enough to make us guilty. So the divines go on and say, now, Understand, when they are writing this, there are foot texts or proof texts that go with this, footnotes in these, where they're drawing all this from the scripture. This is them formulating in their own words what the scripture has said. In a way, it's a written sermon. It's a written teaching, a doctrine. Yet are they not sufficient? Here again, the concept of the negative. They're not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church afterwards for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh, the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same holy unto writing, which maketh the Holy Scripture to be most necessary. Those former ways of God revealing his will unto his people now being ceased. Why is this section packed with truth? And by the time we get through it, we should have a good understanding of what it means and what the Bible teaches. We are looking at this very principle the concept that in general revelation we are left inexcusable with an insufficient amount of knowledge about God of his will as it relates to man and salvation in Christ. And yet at the same time, a sufficient amount to leave us inexcusable. And so it is, we talk about this from the concept of general revelation. 
excuse me. And by that we mean man created in the image of God is a thinking being. But that image bearing ability to think propositionally cannot yield the knowledge that is needed by man to know the true God in the way that the scripture reveals him to us. To know of his will for man, for salvation, in the purpose and meaning of history. That if we are to know the real truth of God, it must be developed on that which alone can validate or justify <clears throat> any proposition we believe. In other words, when we talk about teaching the doctrine of God, the doctrine of covenants, of man, of Christ, of redemption, of the church, of last things, that whole system of doctrine point of justification to say these things are true this is the basis of all truth the validation of truth is in the special revelation of God to man if God says it it's true and my job is to think God's thoughts after him, which means I'm to have the mind of Christ, which is another way of saying I need to know how God reveals himself in his word. Not in the created world of things, because that's insufficient. It leaves me inexcusable, but it doesn't supply me with a valid knowledge, the truth of God, based on the propositions that he has given his word to tell me when my thoughts are thinking the very thoughts expressed in the word the way that God expresses them, what I am thinking is truth. It is valid knowledge. It's not a guess. It's not a judgment. It is truth in itself. And that is the knowledge we're talking about. Well, we started the last time dealing very importantly with this aspect of an innate morality within man. And we ended talking about <clears throat> the concept of what Shaw says concerning the innate nature of God's knowledge and morality and how that the two things just simply continue to hold us in guilt. If there is the concept of a divine being, and if he has given law to men, 
clearly God who gives law, of a law we can't escape from, written on the very constitutional nature of a man, the scripture says in Romans. The works of the law written upon the very nature of man cannot escape the consequence of a failure to keep those commandments, which brings back to him the truth of the great deity that he has some aspect or seed of knowledge, not with great specificity. It's a general theism, but it is enough that it holds him guilty knowing the consequence or disobedience is judgment. Man constantly seeks to do what? Suppress the truth and unrighteousness. He seeks to eradicate the image of God in man. He wants to change that image to the point, if even necessary, often he will even kill himself because he cannot live with the guilt. Well, I want to continue and take a closer look at our innate nature of knowledge and morality found as man being created in this very image of God. I told you I was going to drive this home. I'm not going to quit till one day you'll be able to walk out here and say, well, I know what chapter one, section one, is clearly about. Now, we do not question the veracity of the statement that throughout the nations historically, there have been various manifestations of a divine being among the people, tribes, and nations. You can see man's created in the image of God. He thinks religiously. They had all kinds of religions and practices, concepts, names of deities. You see man literally in the image of God in his state of depravity where ethically he's been affected and he will not do anything but suppress the true God of which he was created in the image and substituted for other beings or creatures. We have said that people are the very image of God and therefore religious and have an innate awareness of a divine being. We call that census divinitas. It's Latin. It means the sense of divinity. Or the census dietas, sense of deity. Or the semen religionis, the seed of religion term first used by the French Protestant reformer John Calvin to describe a hypothetical, that is a theoretical, human sense or perception of the idea of an internal perception of deity since man is created in the image of God. This seed of divinity 
this seed of deity, this seed of religion, makes man religious. You see, the first sin was not that they disbelieved in God. It was they ethically violated the moral command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as a result, man ethically created a division with God in rebellion that had an effect, doesn't make man insane, but had an epistemological effect so that he, by the very ethical nature of the breach in the relationship between man and God, he will force upon that sense of deity, that sense of religion, that sense of divinity into images that he wants God to be in. On the basis of what? Man wanted to become what? Like God. Determining for himself. Isn't that what Satan says? Doth not God know that in the day you eat thereof, you will be like God determining for yourself good and evil. That's what man wanted. He wants to set the boundaries. He wants to say what is right and what is wrong. But he's the creature. He does not have the ability to set that requirement. The creature is different than the creator. There is a distinction there. We hold to in Reformed theology that creator-creature distinction. But the creature now wants to do what? It wants to be more like God. Actually, it's more right to say he wants to be his own God. And history is flooded with that very concept. All except for biblical Christianity. Every other religion has created God, has created their religion in the things that they have desired. Ours is both a transcendent and an eminent understanding of God as creator and then God in Christ in the incarnation to dwelling among men. The triune God decreeing and working out the economy of our salvation. There's nothing like it. Nothing. Every religion in the world fails where Christianity alone succeeds to the one true God. Now, we need to note that this first chapter does not put forth either an evidentialistic or a rationalistic argument for the existence of God. 
Never is there an appeal to the objects of existence. Oh, don't you, if you look at that tree long enough, you'll find that the effect is related to the cause, which is the real God. No evidential truth. There's no such thing. There's no way to go from the observation of the finite without jumping in an existentialistic blind way to the concept of infinity. It's impossible. It's also impossible to jump from the understanding of that sense of deity to the concept that there's something really not only is in my mind, but actually exists out there in the world. There's no demonstration to it. We have not come to the truth by logic or reason alone. It's not to say that man cannot reason. He does. But he cannot reason or write apart from the word of God. So there is no evidentialistic or rationalistic argument for the existence of God, which we shall view later in the various apologetical portions of our series that we are lecturing upon and laying a foundation now. But we'll hold that off till we get there and to go into greater detail. Want to first give you the foundation of what it is we believe and then how we are to what? To give an answer for the faith, the hope that is within us. That hope comes from the very theological foundation of our faith. However, it does not speak of the nature of objects or of their existence. We're talking about that concept of evidentialism or rationalism. This is not the concept of cosmological argument even in those declaration of things which are created of God and are a part and parcel of the basic epistemic theory of the divine. It simply does not. Most particularly known to man who was created in the image of God was endued with that knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. There is this innate knowledge or knowledge and morality that has been placed within Man, and we'll talk about that even in more detail when we get to the doctrine of man being a created being in our theology. The witness of these attributes as evidenced by a general revelation are nonetheless known as God's objects of the created order, which the divines have noted that the only clear definition as such, its true material or phenomenological nature as an object of existence is established in the authority of God's special revelation, or we say it in this way today, the Holy Scripture or the Word of God written or the Holy Bible is what tells us 
not only that there are objects of existence, but defines what those objects are. Thus, when we talk about creation, we're not talking about a scientific, observational, you can't get to the very issues of why from the concepts of science. How? Yes. How does a tree live? What are the stages of a tree's life? And how does it come to pass that it goes from one state during the winter to another state in the summer? Science is good for telling you how how to build cars, how to build refrigerators, how do things function, but it never tells us why the things are the way they are. That is a theological question. And you cannot study the objects apart from the why. And the why comes from the scripture, and the scripture sets the parameters for our study of the how. Now, if you believe the word of God, you'd already know, if you had half a brain, sending out spaceships into the universe is a waste of time. Unless you want to visit every rock and sand Doom you can find on every other planet. There is no life anywhere else. This is it. But you could spend all that money in developing and taking dominion over the world God has created for us to live in and have dominion over. Do you know that we've only understood and explored 10% of our oceans? 10%? Can you imagine? Every time they go into the depths of the ocean, they come up with new creatures and new things that they did not know. No man wants to go out and try to find life somewhere else to prove Christianity was wrong. And man, he's going to throw billions and trillions of dollars at it. Boy, that makes it a brilliant idea, doesn't it? But in reality, we have from the very core of the earth, through those various shoots that come up out of the ocean, you know you could just get one of those, and if you could harvest the heat off of it, you could light the whole United States with it. That much power. Are we working to do that? Yeah. We're trying to find little gray and green men. Somewhere they got to be out there. We know that because they fly through millions and trillions of miles. I mean, light years aren't small. Just to stick a rod up somebody's tush who lives out in the middle of the swamp. I don't think they're too intelligent either. 
wouldn't it be sad to hear them say, y'all come up here to visit us sometime at the big place. And we find out now we know why they go out and look for those hillbillies to stick rods up their tush. We ought to be developing our knowledge and understanding in the parameters of what God has said to us concerning this world in which we live. We have not even begun to touch the depth of what we have here on our planet. Man's starving to death. And we're spending trillions to go to dead plants. That is so absurd. The love for finding a way to prove the God of Christianity to be false will starve millions, but we'll go to other planets only to find when we get there nothing. Well, it's important for us to understand we're not that foolish when we're informed by the word of God. Thus, the knowledge of the things, these objects, of existence, man in the image of God, the works of creation, and of his divine providence in holding all things together and bringing them to their proper end, were footnoted from the scripture as it being the final authority on all issues of general revelation. Or as we would say, the created order in the revealing of the light of nature and divine providence with specificity from God. Truth changes not, and the only justification to declare something is true is because God simply reveals it. That is to say, he thinks it is so, and that's why it is. And he has preserved it in the writing of his holy word the Holy Scripture, to be a rule, an authority, or as we call it, the canon of Scripture. The term canon from a Hebrew-Greek word meaning a measuring rod passed into Christian usage to mean the norm or the rule of faith for the believer. This innate knowledge rightfully could be called the intellectual design of God. In the things which exist, including man, as a part of that general revelation. Where such knowledge resides and the objects of creation demonstrate such a revelation of existence conveyed authoritatively by the creator himself in his own work. Taking into account the man is made in the image of God as a rational being endued 
which we will see our confession says with knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Thus, such knowledge of God from the created order would not be possible without man as a thinking being, for that is the telos, our purpose, or it is the aim of general revelation. But we only know that because the scripture says that it is so. This is the difference from other confessions that postulate the doctrine of God as the first principle. It begins with a that statement, that God exists, that about God rather than a what. What can be known? How can we know what God is in order that we might believe that God does exist. Thus, it is a question of rather than a cosmological or an ontological point of beginning, the being of God, versus an epistemological point of beginning about can man know anything, and if he does, what is he capable of knowing, especially as it relates to God? Remember this. It's important, both, I think, theologically and philosophically, that the what must always precede the that. Knowledge precedes a belief. A statement. What I know is essential to saying that I know. People often think, they say, well, that's the way it is. No, that only states that it is that way. It never demonstrates. The question is, how do you know that it's that way? Knowledge must proceed to that. The what precedes the that. You must have an epistemological theory in order to develop a true ontological or cosmological or teleological theory dealing with the existence of God. Again, to reiterate, <coughs> excuse me, to begin with an ontological argument or statement about the existence of God must be based on some concept of a general theism which speculates or presumes an idea about the nature and being of God, which is in reality not biblical theism, but at best some general theism or theistic idea. And in reality, is nothing more than theistic fideism, which means basically a blind faith in believing what is not known. This requires no greater an idea than that of a finite being or that of a greater concept of a finite being at best. 
in the arguments by theologians. Therefore, it can be concluded logically that this being may be a greater finite being than man, but not a transcendent God as described by Scripture. We simply do not know. There is no justification for such an assertion. So do you get the point here? Very important, and I want you to get it. It's not enough to say God exists. You see, the subject God with a predicate says God exists. Existence has no description, no meaning. You can't derive that out of the term God. And you have no idea what God you're talking about. You simply place God as the first principle. Why? Well, you could be like Immanuel Kant. Well, you need him. That's all. If you're going to talk about man having a morality, there has to be something greater than in the realm of the phenomenal, you must go to the noumenal realm and posit God. That's all. That's not what the Bible does, my friends, and that's not what we are to do. Yeah, we're created with an innate knowledge. We have propositions that God has given us in general revelational terms. The validation of what we know as that which actually is is based upon an all-knowing mind revealing that to us. And he does it through the written special revelation of God's word. And so it is. This becomes one of the most important aspects of us understanding this necessity of coming and studying the word of the living God. Why there can be no other foundation It's never an argument that. Because when you say that, you don't have a definition to the phrase God, to the term God. And so your definition may be somebody else's, or it may not. You may have 10, 20, 30, 1,000 definitions. But for clarity, And for literally having a common sense, logical discussion, you've got to define your terms. And you've got to agree to the definitions. But that requires a what? You've got to go to where we can know that these things really are. And there is no place else the divines are arguing right out of the chute, as it were, using an old expression of horse racing, right out of the chute, it is coming right from the word of God. 
There's where we find out the what in order to assert that something is true. The word gives us the reason for alleging the that. That something exists. That something is true. Because it defines the parameters and the very nature of it. And you cannot do that without propositions. And we don't have adequate propositions. They've already explained that to us. Enough to make us without excuse. Not enough to reveal that knowledge of God versus the will concerning salvation, Christ, man, redemption, the telos, the purpose of the eschaton. Those were without. And we cannot. And we dare not think we can speak where God himself does not validate our propositions. Where we cannot say this is the mind of the all-knowing God. Nothing escapes his mind. It's all one comprehensive thought. There is no progression of thought in the mind of God. Only when he reveals it to us is it progressive because we can only think progressively. Think about these things. We're talking about this book. It's where we derive all of our knowledge. Oh, we may know things that we can't validate. But they're just propositions with no way of saying this is true. Unless I can show from Scripture where God thinks it so, where he says it so. That's the importance of the word. That's what the divines are driving to. The word alone is sufficient. It speaks with clarity on these things. Oh, there's many things hard to understand from the word, but God gives us the word to study. And yet his spirit searches all things and reveals them to us. How? He wrote the book. And so his spirit, the spirit of God, witnesses to our spirit that these things are the truth of God. May we always put our hope and our faith and our trust in the word of the living God. Shall we pray?